Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 14th, 2021, and we have something a little different today, just a little bit. Different by um, a little bit. 80, by 80%. <laughs> it's... A smidge scaled back. So we had a busy day. We were out of town for most of the day. And so we have so we have a bit of a different show, a lighter version of the show. L-I-T-E, light. Yes, because our show is, even when it's like <laughs> fluffy, it's heavy. <laughs> yeah. We're, ta- we're talking about political violence today. <laughs> Only for a second. Okay. But anyway. One light second. <laughs> We are only going to be focusing on Meet the Press today just for kind of the sake of time and our own capacity. But what's interesting is we've gone back to both of us had the opportunity to take a look together. So yeah, that never happens. We we usually look at different shows and today we did it together. Very throwback of us. I know. And then we also had to collaborate more yes, closely. There was that part. <laughs> So here we are. So let's begin with quality questionable. And I I will pretend to not know what you're going to say, but I do know what you're going to say. Well, I know what you're going to talk about at least. Tell me, Naomi, what was your quality moment today? Or would you call it questionable? I don't know. It's, I, it's a little quality. It's on the quality spectrum, I would say. And it's a sassy Republican, a sa- sassy Republican comments that actually made me chuckle. Yes. So Chuck Todd today interviewed the governor of New Hampshire, Governor Chris Sununo. Apparently, there was a lot of buzz about whether or not he was going to run for Senate. Turns out he's not because he but, thinks. But he gets to be on the Sunday shows anyway. Yeah. So, so look at that. Why not? <laughs> well, who needs the Senate when you can get on without it? But there were a couple of points that literally made me laugh out loud the first is the definition the summary how he describes former president trump and his role in the republican party so you're still comfortable with donald trump's presence in the party well he's a republican that lives in florida I mean, that, that's it. I mean, as far as New Hampshire is concerned, the only thing that matters for the party, what are Republicans right. doing for New Hampshire? What's our Senate and our House and our governor doing for New Hampshire? For, for our citizens, that's what defines the party. And so that's what the, the example and the accountability that I try to live up to. It's not about party politics and platform and what's being said in the national media. It's what we're delivering. And if we can do that every single day, then we're going to be we're going to be successful. Wow. <laughs> That is such a burn. He's a Republican who lives in Florida. <laughs> like, Not only that, he, he says, well, he's a Republican that lives in Florida. I mean, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So I what, just. <laughs> what, do, what do Republicans in New Hampshire care about some guy who lives in Florida? I mean, a lot of New Hampshireans are 
snowbirds in Florida, but it, I get the point. I mean, I appreciate a sassy burn that's trying to act not like a burn. I just, I respect it. <laughs> the other thing that stood out in this interview that I quite enjoyed was the complete, I don't know, about face that Governor Sonono does. Earlier in the interview, he talks about how he essentially decided to forego a role in the Senate because he sees himself in more executive type roles. Again, he's governor. That's more his jam. Okay. And then there's, you know, this whole interview about what the Republican Party needs to focus on, what their principles should be. And then Chuck wants to know, like, are we going to see you on the presidential ticket in 2024? Are we supposed to consider you a presidential candidate in 2024? Um, people have asked me about that. Uh, and, and look, I suppose that would be on the table, but nothing I'm thinking about right now. I, if I went to Washington, it would be in more of a, of a management uh, aspect because that's just what I do. And so uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge or jump off it, you know, down the road. Well, maybe that's a cabinet secretary or maybe that's one of the two elected jobs. Governor Sununu, uh, we'll be following you. Appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective with us. You bet. Thank you. <laughs> so I love that. Are, are, are you pre- are, are you interested in becoming president? Listen, I'm not thinking about it, but if I did, it'd be in a management executive <laughs> role. That's what I'm looking for, but definitely not thinking about it. <laughs> it's just, I mean, whoever's on his comms team, give them a raise. It's quite enjoyable to see someone actually know how to do their job. <laughs> okay, two things. Okay, three things I got to say about this. Number one, Governor Sununo spent some time like five minutes earlier in the interview saying like, talk or speculation about 2024 is ridiculous. We need to focus on (laughs) that. That's right, yeah. (laughs) And then when he's asked about being president, he's like, hmm, well, well, you know, people have asked me that, you know? (laughs) Um, So that's that's the first thing. Second thing is, I love this. If I went to Washington, it would be in more of a management aspect. Could you imagine? It's like an answer to, would you like to go to Hawaii? Well, if I went to Hawaii, it would be more in a management aspect. It's like, there's no other reason to go. Is that it? You have to be what you are. And then the third thing is this like, oh, I'd be like an executive. It reminds me of Eddie Izzard and the stand-up routine that they did. You know, like, uh, there's a guy in the, in, when I was in New York, there was a guy in, in the newspapers in the Bronx. He was living in a cave. He, he had a gun and he was shooting birds or geese or something, making a hell of a racket. The police caught him. They found a lot of women's shoes in this cave and they thought, we well, might be a transvestite. And if he is, he's a fucking weirdo transvestite. I'm more the executive transvestite. <laughs> I live in a house, not a cave, you know? It's, why do we have to live in caves, for fuck's sake? <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, another type of weirdo transvestite. <laughs> Complete psychotic fuckhead he was. When he died, they found out he's a transvestite, and they go, well, that explains it. No, weirdo transvestite, man. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not in the weirdo. I'm trying to move out of the weirdo. I'm much more in, in uh, weirdo area. I'm in the uh, executive transvestite area. That's much more... Uh, <laughs> travel the world business class. Yes, why not? Uh... Yeah, I mean, listen, the ego of a governor is vast. So vast. It's always so consistently overwhelming. I do want to, I mean, coming from a resident of a large state, I, I just I, I just have to note that there are only less than 1.4 million people in the state of New Hampshire. 
And our county here in California has 2.4 million people. So. But we don't get a governor. <laughs> or I, two senators. Oh, yeah, or two senators. Or a representative. I mean, we. We do. We, we oh, have that's re- true. That's true. <laughs> we, we have, have representatives. representatives. You're right. We do have representatives. <laughs> but what I'm saying is if you're a state that's too right. small, right. you still get one representative. Exactly. So take that a grain of salt, all his vast executive experience. I think people would say, well, you have a governor, Governor Newsom. Right. But Governor Newsom is the governor of 40 million people. Yes. And Governor Sununo is the governor of 1.4 million people. Yes. The responsibilities are quite different. Quite. But I. this is not a segment on big versus small states and their representative governments. I didn't know if you'd be able to get through the segment without bringing it up, but you did. I did. I couldn't help it. I truly, I cannot help it. So anyway, we'll save that rant for another day. Naomi or- hates small states. <laughs> to hell with them. And all the people in them. That's not true. <laughs> I just don't like the way we're represented. Or Anyway, we're going to save this. Brendan, what is your quality moment? So my quality moment is that light moment that I mentioned at the beginning, which is not light at all. It's a conversation, a recognition of the real problem of political violence within one particular political party, the Republican Party. And Meet the Press, right at the top of their show, zeroed in directly on this. And the reason I wanted to highlight this moment was that a few weeks ago, I criticized Meet the Press for spending so much time talking about Trump standing within the party, that he is gaining more and more power, without at any point during that earlier reporting mentioning why this is even newsworthy beyond, oh, someone's got power within the party, whatever. There's always someone with power in the party. But It's newsworthy because of what Trump represents. And here, finally, Meet the Press is connecting those dots and talking about how President Trump is connected and driving political violence within the Republican Party. And that's a problem, and it's something that should be talked about, and they talk about it right here at the top of the show. Here's a bit of that. Republican leaders have been slow to condemn the attack on the Capitol, taking their cues from the former president. We're saying hang my because pants. it's it's common sense, John. It's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, right? Yeah. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? We are also confronting a domestic threat, aided by political leaders who have made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. Now many in the party are adopting former President Trump's violent language. From Republican leaders. I want you to watch Nancy Pelosi hand me that gun. It'll be hard not to hit her with it, but I will bang it down. To the conservative grassroots. A Reuters investigation documented nearly 800 intimidating messages to election officials in 12 states. Tell the truth or your three kids will be fatally shot. Let's be clear. This is domestic terrorism. So a few of the voices that you heard in that report, because it's a little difficult to identify, there was an exchange with President Trump at the top that is from recently released material from Jonathan Carl's conversation with President Trump, where Carl mentions they were saying, hang Mike Pence. And President Trump says, well, it's common sense, John. Common sense. That's a direct quote. 
of Trump's response. Then we heard from Liz Cheney. Then we heard Representative Kevin McCarthy saying it would be hard for him not to hit Nancy Pelosi with a gavel. And the last voice was Al Schmidt. So this is the Meet the Press team pulling together this story and saying one of our major political parties has now violence at the center of it. And at the center of that, the driver of that is former President Trump, literally calling it out as domestic terrorism. This is huge. And I wonder how much longer this is going to be able to just simmer like under the under the rug, under the headlines until more, you know, it's really good to see more and more of these shows directly confronting it. I think the focus on condoning or the acceptance of violence of Republican supporters is going to be like the coverage of that aspect is going to be directly tied to whatever the January 6th committee is doing. I'd be surprised if any of the news organizations follow it just for the sake of what's happening within the Republican Party. I feel like it will most likely be tied to the investigations as to what was known, expected, approved of, forgiven from the January 6th insurrection. But we'll see. Maybe they'll stay on it. I don't know. I hope it continues to be an issue that is covered and not swept under the rug in all these conversations. All right, Naomi, that takes us to the main segment. Yeah, so for today's episode, we are focusing on the Brian Deese interview on Meet the Press today. He is the chair of the National Economic Council under President Joe Biden. And he was really there talking about kind of the state of the economy. There's a lot of new, newer stories about inflation. Supply chain issues are still ongoing. And so there was a lot of talk about what the Biden administration is doing to kind of address both these immediate and long-term issues. Yes, as Chuck Todd highlighted at the start of the interview, inflation jumped 6% in October year over year. And that is a huge, huge gain, the largest in decades. And it kind of threw cold water on some good economic stories related to, you know, job growth and the passage finally through the House of the infrastructure deal for President Biden. So it complicates Biden's story, but also the United States's economic story, which is much bigger than Biden's story. So Here was Chuck Todd asking Brian Deese about it. This is Chuck Todd's first question. And take particular note of how Chuck Todd phrases this question, because we'll have a bit of a conversation about that. Look, I want to start. It was literally six months ago on this show that the Treasury Secretary and former Fed Chair Janet Yellen said, look, inflation, it's just not an issue. Two weeks later, when some numbers came out, that was the first time the administration started using the word transitory to say temporary. This is six months ago. Uh, is it fair to say this is no longer transitory? There's no doubt inflation is high right now. It's affecting Americans' pocketbooks. It's affecting their outlook. Uh, and that's a problem we have to deal with. But it's important that we put this in context. When the president took office, we were facing an all-out economic crisis. 18 million people were collecting unemployment benefits. 3,000 people a day were dying of COVID. And because of the actions the president has taken, we're now seeing an economic recovery that most people didn't think was possible then. Economic growth in America is outstripping any other developed country. And the unemployment rate has come down to 4.6%. That's about two years faster than experts projected. So a robust conversation here. 
I really like that Chuck Todd brought up what the Treasury Secretary said six months ago. But I do not like this last question, the actual question in Chuck Todd's point here, which is, quote, is it fair to say this is no longer transitory, end quote. I don't like it because it treats Brian D. simply as an expert, and it asks him if this fact is true or not true. And yes, Brian Deese is an economist. He can be considered an expert, but he's also got a lot of political power and policy power within the government. And there are tons of experts that these journalists should be leaning on to get the facts of what's going on about the economy. But Brian Deese should be pressed on what those facts are, not asked what those facts are. So I don't like that this is a question. I would much prefer it to say, you know, Chuck Todd to say something like, this inflation is not as transitory as you suggested it would be. And my question to you is, why should we believe what you're going to say about what it's going to do next if you were wrong about that? If the White House was wrong about inflation six months ago, why do we expect that you're going to be right about inflation now? And what are you doing about it? Rather than asking him if you have your facts straight. I do have issues with this question. I don't have the same issues I think you do, Brendan. I think there is a greater conversation to have about what is transitory. And depending on which interview you're listening to, some people are saying it is still considered transitory. Some people are saying it's not. And I think you could ask for an explanation for how the Biden administration views transitory inflation increases and what they're doing to then address it in their own terms, right? Because if we have an understanding as to how the Biden administration sees it, then you can critique it on Biden's terms rather than potentially talking about it from different points. Yeah, I think that's definitely a a meaningful point, Naomi. I, I agree that like, what does transitory mean to people? And also, what are the What are the goals? What are we talking about here, right? Are we talking about inflation has gone up and therefore it's hurting people? So what do we expect the administration to do to help people deal with the inflation? Or are we expecting, oh, the White House and the government can stop this inflation? That's what we must be afraid of. Is it getting bigger, right? And we need to stop it. So are we more concerned about what is going to happen in the future? Or are we concerned about helping people in the now dealing with these increased prices? Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I guess the other part of my comment that I left unsaid is that I think you can treat Deese as both an economic expert and a representative of the Biden administration who is crafting policy and implementing policy to address it. You wouldn't ask that question to a non-expert. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in continuing this line of questioning around inflation, Brian Deese continues in his kind of next couple responses around the three aspects in which the Biden administration are taking action to address inflation concerns. The challenge we have now is how to build on the strength of that recovery while also addressing the price issues. And for us, that means three things. One, we have to finish the job on COVID. We have to return to a sense of economic normalcy by getting more workplaces COVID-free, getting more kids vaccinated so more parents feel comfortable going to work. 
Number two, we've got to address the supply chain issue. Uh, and the bipartisan infrastructure bill that the president will sign on Monday is going to do more to help get goods moving more cheaply and freely through the American economy than anything in half a century. And third, we have to address those costs that are the biggest pain points for the American, uh, for American families. Things like housing and healthcare and childcare. That's exactly what the Build Back Better bill that the House is going to consider this week will do. And we're looking forward to working on that and getting that done as soon as we can. Look, uh, COVID makes a lot of sense, but the other two points are a bit longer term. And I understand this, that your job in some ways is to protect the long term, but there are some short term challenges. I want to put up here, Yes, we have an economic recovery, but inflation is now outstripping the wage gains. As you can sit here year over year, wages are up nearly 5%, but the inflation basically eats all of it and then some. So then we're starting to see some eating into savings. So one thing I want to point out, uh, (laughs) this is very interesting, right? Deese provides three solutions, he says, that the White House is dealing with to deal with inflation. Chuck Todd literally in the next response says, okay, one of those things makes a lot of sense. The other two are just long-term things that you're working at and won't necessarily deal with it. So there is Chuck Todd right in the answer, critiquing and essentially dismissing two-thirds of Deese's answer. And Chuck Todd brings his own data along to kind of push back on that. Now, I do want to note that the Washington Post highlighted slightly different data literally today in an article that they published that said, quote, most families have more financial resources than they did before COVID, especially among the bottom third. And that, quote, even when accounting for inflation, disposable income has been roughly 9.5 percent higher in 2021 than it was before the coronavirus pandemic hit in 2019. So there is some dispute about the impact of inflation on Americans, like whether they're ahead or behind where they were before the pandemic. But no doubt that inflation is impacting people for sure. Naomi, what do you think about this, you know, critique that Chuck Todd has right there saying one of the three things that Dee said makes sense, the other two don't? Well, to be honest, I think it kind of goes back to the first question. Like if we had a better understanding of what people are considering transitory, I think you could agree or disagree with Chuck Todd easier. If transitory in the Biden administration means potentially six to 12 months, and for instance, the childcare tax credits are continuing on next year, then those would be impacting the inflation concerns, right? If we're saying transitory means one to two years, then yeah, maybe that's not enough. But it seems like... News organizations are like, why hasn't this been fixed in three months? And the Biden administration, you know, indirectly is saying we're working on this and it'll be fixed and we're watching it. So it's, you know, addressed in the next, I don't know, nine months or I mean, these aren't like defined terms, but it just seems like when we say people are hurting, how long have they been hurting? When did that hurt get worse? Are we anticipating for it to get to stay on track or are we peaking or whatever? And that's uh, the news article that you mentioned, Brendan, you know, talks about that is that we don't really have a clear understanding is are we at the height of the inflation or are we at the start or in the middle? You know, it's hard to criticize the mitigations because we don't know 
when they're supposed to solve the solutions or like when they're supposed to reach their solutions right i think that's like the part that feels very strange to me like we're talking about a problem without a timeline and people are saying we're taking too long or we're being too slow or we're actually making fast progress it's like on what timeline whose timeline like it's very confusing Right. And again, we're not talking about what the goal is. Is mm-hmm. the goal to simply stop inflation in its tracks so that it doesn't grow and become a problem? Or is the goal to reduce the price burden on the average American buying food and gas and paying for all sorts of things, right? That's the question. And, you know, you mentioned the child tax credit, Naomi. Inflation is a very complex idea, mm-hmm. you know, that is, you know, a part of supply, a part of demand. When we understand what's driving this inflation, it's largely a result of not having enough stuff for people to buy. And so you have less supply and you have a lot of demand because people have a lot of savings and are starting to spend. Then prices go up, right? Let's just imagine, right? We are selling little bunt cakes, right? We got little bunt cakes because we happen to have one sitting right here in front of us. (laughs) Listen, this is a pre-recording snack. Yes. Okay? Yes. So, we got, you know, we've got three little bunt cakes. And let's say this is intermission at some sort of sporting event or, or play or something, right? And uh, you got 100 people hungry. You got three bunt cakes, right? If you had 300 bunt cakes and 100 people, well, that's not a problem, is it? Right? <laughs> so, you're probably going to sell them at what the general cost is for one of these bunt cakes let's say it's six six bucks each but it's quite small we don't have a full like giant yes. like pan. a little one a little one right <laughs> so you got more bunt cakes than people then it's going to sell for less if you've got three bunt cakes and 100 people you can probably sell it for 20 bucks 30 bucks 40 bucks that's inflation price goes up when you got more demand and less supply and that's exactly what we have right now we've got more demand and less supply so let's go back to this idea of the child tax credit give people more money to spend then you increase the number of people who are out there vying to buy some cake well it might be good for them because that more expensive cake will be you know will hurt less on their wallet but you're increasing the demand for that product and therefore the price might go up even more so it's just it's a tricky concept and i feel like meet the press and the uh, in the past the other sunday shows didn't do a great job of explaining how tricky this concept is when things get more expensive what's driving that and how it can be dealt with well and how it can be dealt with and that people are impacted in different ways right so if you are the bunt cake maker you might be impacted by the cost of eggs. If you yes. are, <laughs> if you are, you know, if you work in logistics, maybe you are struggling to get the butt cakes to the stadium. <laughs> maybe if you are, you know, a f- I don't, what sport are we talking about? I don't know. If you're a spectator at whatever this generic sporting event is, you know, Maybe you're struggling to get snacks for your kids and it becomes a really stressful thing about how you're going to, you know, have this day, nice day out and also give your kids some snacks. Right. And so it's a very complicated problem. Yes. But we're not hearing the perspectives of how they're actually impacting people. And, you know, I think 
the Biden administration is, you know, smartly focusing a lot on the worker gains and the rise in disposable income and, you know, all the kind of ways in which they have tried to ameliorate the situation for the average American where news organizations are having a separate conversation. So like when you don't parse it out, it seems like they're not talking about the same thing is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the importance of alternatives as well. What's not discussed here, but is worth mentioning is like, what is the alternative to this inflation? Well, the alternative might be that you don't have as strong of a job market, right? The alternative might be that people don't have as much savings and you have not enough demand because Americans can't go out and spend because they don't have anything to spend, right? And so you have more unemployment, you have you know people with less money in their pockets, you have a less healthy economy, you have an economy where things aren't, you know, the Fortune 500 isn't doing as well as it's doing, which it's been, you know, at record highs throughout the Biden administration, or I should say record gains have been seen. So this is a real issue, but there are other situations that could be way worse than the situation right now. Sure, people are hurting, but it could be, it could be worse. This kind of, you're kind of bringing up some of the themes of the next part that we wanted to look at in which Chuck Todd looks at specifically the labor shortages as a potential, you know, area that needs fixing or addressing and, you know, being a real pain point in this whole inflation concern. It was an interesting kind of back and forth with Brian Deese because Chuck Todd continues on this question on is there a labor shortage? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Take a listen to the first time he kind of opened the line of questioning. So um, you talk about the supply chain issue. Let's start with the labor market. We have a massive problem in the labor market. So, some of it's COVID related. Some of it, though, is just we're, we need more workers. Uh, is it time to open the immigration door? Well, I'm glad you made the point about wages because uh, there's more to that statistic than meets the eye. If you look at the strong wage gains that have happened, plus the direct support that we provided to families, checks in pockets and the child tax credit, the disposable income for a typical family is actually up about 2%, even after you take into account inflation, which is why we've actually seen checking account balances go up uh, and credit card balances come down over the course of the year. Now, that doesn't reduce the frustration anymore when somebody's going to the gas station and they see prices go up, but it does mean that we are well positioned mm. to try to address these challenges going forward. With respect to the labor market, 500,000 jobs a month created, that's historic job growth. We want to get all Americans uh, back to work, but it means focusing on things that actually practically are keeping people from going to work right now. Yeah. COVID is a big element of this. Last month, 4 million people reported that they weren't able to fully work because either they themselves or they were dealing with a family member. The more that we can get back to a sense of normalcy, get workplaces COVID-free, get more people vaccinated, the more we're going to solve that issue. But I I really want to focus on childcare here too. So this is interesting because what Chuck wants to talk about is labor shortages. And what Brian Deese wants to talk about are worker conditions, specifically wages. And there are different aspects of, you know, do we have enough people to do the jobs that we need, but kind of from very different places. You don't hear Brian Deese acknowledging the question around a worker shortage to begin with. 
Chuck Todd follows up. I understand that, but this doesn't solve the labor. I mean, we have a truck driver problem. This isn't going to suddenly magically fix itself because you've got a better uh, you've got a better pre-K um, situation in this country. The truck driver issue, this appears to be there's not a lot of people who want to be truck drivers. That's what I'm asking. You got to open the immigration door. You seem to duck that question. Well, I'm glad you raised the question of uh, trucking and truck drivers. The situation we have in the economy right now, we're moving more goods through the economy than we ever have before. The supply chain challenges are a function of actually us being more successful at moving goods through the economy. But the demand is uh, really high, up 17 percent from before the pandemic. So we're looking at doing everything we practically can, for example, to speed the issuances of a commercial driver's license, you know, to to Mm -hmm. actually drive a long haul truck. You need to uh, get training to do so in states around the country. We're working to open on nights and weekends to allow uh, more people to get a commercial driver's license. The other thing we need to do is we need to pay good wages and benefits to truckers. A lot of the reason why people don't want to be truck driver, it's hard work. Uh, You have to be away from your family. Uh, It's physically exhausting. And if you look over the last two decades, the wages paid to truck drivers have just come down and down and down. The good news is truck companies are recognizing that now. They're starting to offer bonuses and wage increases. And as they do, this will become a more attractive uh, profession for people. So we got to work on the training, but also paying people and making it an attractive uh, job for them to take. It sounds like you don't believe we have a worker shortage. We don't have a labor shortage. Um, You Twice now I've asked on the immigration front, you don't think we need more labor in this country, particularly in the service sector? We have one of the strongest labor market recoveries that we've seen in modern history, and we need to do more to get people to work. But we're focused on those drivers that will actually help Americans get into the workforce. Uh, and those are things like getting COVID under control and also providing childcare. Uh, You know, that is a here and now issue. That's not a tomorrow issue for a lot of families, a lot of women, Mm -hmm. more than 2 million women uh, who have left the labor force precisely because they have to manage these family issues. If we can get quality childcare, quality preschool in place, that's going to free them up to get into the labor market. So first we have to point out that Chuck Todd directly said, you seem to duck that question. We don't get enough of that signposting on the Sunday shows. We really don't. Even when follow-ups, you know, revisit a question, we rarely get someone saying to the audience, you know, a host saying, this person is ducking the question. And I'm going to tell them that. I'm going to tell you, the audience, that. And I'm going to ask it again. Chuck Todd three times is pushing this question. And Brian Deese does not. He does not want to engage in it. Yeah, this is very active listening on Chuck Todd's part. And I think he stays on it for an extended period of time because, I don't know, maybe it's a part of the inflation question that maybe the Biden administration hasn't been asked enough, or at least on the Sunday shows. I don't think we've been hearing questions around labor shortages or immigration specifically to address some of these economic questions these more immediate economic questions. And so I think it's just like well done on Chuck Todd's part to kind of really stay with it and not necessarily kind of going through a checklist of questions and just accepting whatever answer the Biden administration provides. So that's first and foremost. From Deese's perspective, though, it is very clear that he has gotten like zero approval to say anything about immigration. Yeah. I mean, he is a smart guy. Like he is not a dummy. And he's not even acknowledging the potential for 
a need for more workers to yeah. address these concerns. Yeah, if he was just a professor sitting on a stage at a conference and was asked this exact same question, he'd probably talk about the history of Japan and labor shortages and the role of immigration in American history in stoking, you know, su- the supply of workers, you know, for 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 decades and over a century and but no, he's not even touching it. He's not even acknowledging it. He is saying, look, this is what we're focused on. Families, women, people, Americans, he says, who are not in the workforce. We're focused on them. Yeah, I mean, to be cynical about it, like the Biden administration is trying to convince people of some pretty large legislative priorities to say that they're going to be improving the lives of Americans. So I'm not surprised that they're not willing to talk about immigration, but it's not acknowledging a valid concern and a, and a valid suggestion on what we need potentially to kind of claw our way back out of this acute economic crisis. Yeah. Well, I think Chuck Todd could make things stronger if he had introduced it with a little more explanation for the audience, right? Like Chuck Todd says, and I really hate the way he says this because it can be very confusing. He's like, quote, is it time to open the immigration door? End quote. That's the sentence he uses to introduce immigration. That's all he says about immigration. Right. That's like a... <laughs> Is it time to open the immigration door? You might as well say, should we open up the border? Right. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> because Republicans love to say, oh, Democrats are opening the border. They've got open borders. That's the policy of the Democrats is open borders. And so you, Chuck Todd, are going to say, is it time to open the immigration door? That is very, very badly It's just sloppy. Very sloppy. Very sloppy. And also doesn't inform the audience like, well, what, huh? What what, what does this have to do with immigration? I don't get it. You didn't like connect the dots for them. Right. To say that we're experiencing shortages in these industries most acutely then what if we accepted these types of visas to address it or whatever? Exactly. And these are companies that have asked for visas. You know, there's tons of tech companies who have wanted visas expanded. You know, such and such association needs them or whatever. None of that. None of that. Just is it time to open the immigration door? (laughs) Immigration door. I feel like I'm going to use that in a stupid, lazy way (laughs) in our show and be on the lookout for the use in future episodes immigration door but another thing that's missing here from the meet the press perspective is information on these workers that are being discussed who you know where there are shortages in these industries there's so much political polling about what do you think of trump what do you think of biden what do you think of aliens like how about polling some truck drivers and finding out or people who were truck drivers or who are prospective truck drivers and finding out what's holding them back. What are they thinking right now? Where's the industry talking to or you could go and talk to some industry, you know, trade experts, people who sell trucks. What's the story there? You know, I mean, just from anecdotal understanding, like I know people who were considering that that domain of, of work. But for like a decade now, People have said, oh, well, the trucking industry is going to go, you know, the way of the dodo. There's no there's no trucking industry in a world where you have driverless cars and they're right around the corner 
and Elon Musk is promising it, and Apple's investing billions, and Google's investing in Waymo. You know, you can go on YouTube right now and watch actual trucks in like a train, like a, you know, truck after truck after truck lined up in front of each other in like tests on highways to show how they could like basically move across the highway in a more driverless way, right? And there have been projections by smart analyst firms like Deloitte, et cetera, saying things like, you know, the trucking industry is, you know, the X million number of workers, and it's expected to decline this much over the next few decades because of the introduction of automation. So that might also be a reason why people aren't ready to invest the time and effort and energy it takes to train up and get licensed and invest in a job that might not pay off for very long. Now, the reality is driverless cars aren't here. You know, every every five years, we are told it's five years away and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I think that's one potential angle. Right. Just that's one. Yeah. There's so many. There's so many different angles. You could talk about the expectation to have one person in a household constantly traveling right now in COVID times is extremely demanding on the entire household. And you can find a job close to home. Why would you take that job? Right. And, you know, the the lack of insights, whether that's from actual interviews from workers or qualitative data from smart firms, from people themselves, like whatever it might be, like there's ways you can bring that insight into the show to inform how we think about these problems. And it doesn't always happen on the Sunday shows, but sometimes it does. You know, I'm thinking a few years ago, Chuck Todd had people from, I think it was West Virginia or Ohio, talking about the opioid epidemic. And I'm pretty sure it was West Virginia. And it just, there are experts in this who are working on this in like the day to day and have much more kind of immediate insights that they could share that would be really illuminating. And it doesn't always make sense when and where the Sunday shows are willing to kind of explore those voices and to invite those voices onto the shows. And I don't expect it every week, but we've been talking about the economy for several months and it's always been the same people. You know, the Federal Reserve Banks, some CEOs and Brian Deese or Janet Yellen. Those are the only people that are on the Sunday shows talking about what's happening with our money. And Everyone's an expert with about their own household. So anyone <laughs> really could could talk about this. And so it's just really frustrating to see the conversation so narrow. Yeah, it's not surprising that people feel like these experts and these journalists are not speaking for them or not talking to them. They're talking at a different level. Absolutely. So overall, Naomi, how would you grade this? I mean, you know, we're not doing a real grade or ratings, but I mean, what did you think of this interview overall? since it's one of the key interviews on one of the top shows this Sunday. I thought that Brian Deese did the job of his boss, right? He's talking about the aggressive measures that they have put into place. The Biden administration. The Biden administration has put into place already to accelerate job growth, to make investments in trying to address the COVID pandemic and to make people feel safe and confident. Essentially, I feel like the lack of context from Meet the Press makes it harder to identify the gaps in Deese's interview. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But it also makes for a less rewarding interview experience from the viewer's perspective. One thousand percent. And, you know, we're seeing economic experts 
all over the Sunday shows, all over our newspapers, everywhere in media. And maybe I'm kind of jumping to our dialogue challenge. But it's just like, we should be expecting more. Like, the there isn't a lack of economists in this country. <laughs> like, you can find someone who knows about worker issues. You can find someone who knows about specifically trucker issues. You can find someone who has focused on, like, supply chain issues within, you know, food production. Like, there's a way to find the experts that's going to give you the insight that is going to be most valuable. And it's incumbent on the journalists on these news organizations to seek out that expertise and to seek out the expertise of people who are in this day in and day out. Yes, it, you're exactly right on that. You you absolutely got that right. Like, who is the Scott Gottlieb of inflation or of the economy? I know that Face the Nation has been leaning on people like Neil Kashkari and folks at the World Bank to try to get that. I don't think they've quite put their finger on it because these are very like people who are so deep in their field that they're not really good translators to the public, I feel like, on these issues. I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but... No. How what, what would you say these people actually are the people we're talking about that need to be They on? could be. Yeah, I think they could be. I don't think they necessarily always are. Okay. Well, at least Face the Nation's working on it. Yes, I would agree with that. But these other shows need to, need to do that as well. Absolutely. And I feel like what's missing... Uh, the other thing that's missing in these conversations is like... The expectations of consumers in general, like we haven't talked about how consumerism has changed beyond that, like demand is high. I don't know. I think I said this last week or two weeks ago. It's like, is prime delivery necessary for everything we purchase? I don't know. There's like, there's value in asking the question and exploring the conversation as to like ethical consumerism and how that might be playing a role in this economy. But that's a conversation for another day, I think. Well, no, but I think it's it's worth pointing out that that the environment in which we live and understand the world is different now than it was just a few years ago, and certainly than it was when we last talked about inflation. Like we have uh, multiple generations of people out there today who are adults or becoming adults that have like zero memory of inflation and what it is. And how it's how it drives the economy and well, how like, to deal with it. We, we talk about like the rise of price of eggs as if that's like an, you know, the only way to compare what's happening now to like the inflation crisis of the late 70s. Right. And it's just like, gee, the way we are consumers is quite different. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite different. And so it's they're just, they're just very kind of like basic and are not dynamic enough to reflect our actual economy. Which is why we need journalists to do a way better job at helping people understand what is going on right now. Mm -hmm. Because we kind of have to get an idea of what's happening before we have like critical conversations about the ways to fix it. Right, and this, you know what this reminds me of, Brendan, is just like how crappy of a job news organizations did in like 2007, 2008, talking about the housing crisis. And they just kept talking about like subprime mortgages. Yep. And no and one credit was- Credit default swaps. Yeah, and it's like, but, but what were the banks doing? Like, right. no one was explaining that very well on in like the average <laughs> mid-sized newspaper. And it feels very, very similar to that. Yeah, these are complex economic concepts, but they have very real human impacts. So there's a lot there for the dialogue challenge. I guess what we're saying is... Yeah, what is the challenge? Just notice who 
you know, the news that you're consuming, who are they citing? And are they bringing you valuable insight? And if they're not, is there somewhere else you can go? It's a good dialogue count. And if you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow the show at polylogcast. You can follow me at bstidal on Twitter. And you can follow me on Twitter at soronaomi underscore. Thanks, everyone. We will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.